Fillmore to talk about the Asbury Revival. This is episode 131 of Church and Maine. Church in Maine. This is the podcast. It's at the intersection of faith and modern life. My name is Dennis Sanders, and I am your host. Um, last episode, we talked. I talked with Lauren Richmond Jr. kind of about two events that had kind of happened almost at the same time, but uh, and that was the He Gets Us advertising campaign and the Asbury revival. And um, in this episode, actually, I continue talking a little bit more about the Asbury Revival um, with Frederick Schmidt. Um, uh, Frederick has been on this podcast many times before, and I wanted to bring him on to talk about this um, because I think he brings some uh, an interesting view of, of this whole event. Um, now, it might seem a little bit interesting because... Um, he is uh, um, an ordained Episcopal priest, and I think we tend to think of Episcopalians and revival seemingly two things that don't exist, don't seem to exist. Um, however, he has a long experience of um, being involved in Methodist institutions, so he understands kind of what's going on at Asbury, which is a United Methodist institution. Um, and seeing this whole uh, revival from a Wesleyan perspective um, and what it's all about. And so we talk a little bit about that. Um, what does this mean for American evangelicalism? What does this mean for um, mainline Protestantism? Um, and a little bit more about kind of the on what's going to be happening from this event. Um he has an article there that I will include in the show notes, and there will be some others that I will talk about um, after this discussion. So um, enough of me talking. So now let's uh, get into this discussion with uh, Frederick Schmidt, who is the vice rector at Good Shepherd Episcopal Church um, in Nashville. Um, and also before that, he was um, had the Reuben P. Job Chair in Spiritual Formation um, at Garrett Evangelical Theological Seminary in Evanston, Illinois. Um, and as I said, currently is a Vice Rector at Good Shepherd um, outside of Nashville. So without further ado, here's Frederick Schmidt. Glad to have you back. This is, I think, maybe Thanks. number four. So you may be the most visited person on the podcast so far. <laughs> well, I'm honored. <laughs> Thanks, Dennis. So um, I have you here to talk. We had some other plans to talk about some other things, but I wanted to really talk to you, you about what was going on um, at Asbury University in Kentucky. Um, well, and the reason I, I wanted to talk to you is – um, because of your background of having, um, even though you are, you come from, um, the Episcopal Anglican, um, background, you've worked in Methodist or, or Wesleyan institutions. Um, and, um, Asbury is a, is a Wesleyan institution. And right. so you look at, you are looking at what's going on in Asbury from that kind of a, a Wesleyan standpoint. Um, and so I guess maybe first off is to understand what does revival mean for Wesleyan and how is that different from maybe the, the more common understanding of revival? 
Right. Well, the I, I guess the more kind of common understanding of revival is probably more deeply shaped by the Reformed tradition mm-hmm. and the Reformed evangelical tradition. Uh, one thinks of, for example, someone like Billy Graham mm-hmm. and the revivals that Billy Graham held. There, the focus is on conversion and on an experience of Christ. Uh, it's sometimes very deeply rooted in uh, the conviction that one can only experience conversion as an adult and that it takes an adult assent to the work of God for that saving experience to take place. By contrast, in the Wesleyan tradition, uh, the emphasis is much more on transformation of the believer. Mm -hmm. Uh, Borrowing on the teaching of John Wesley, the holiness movement, which shaped things at Asbury deeply over the centuries, uh, really holds that what God has in mind for us is the sanctification of the believer. This is language that's borrowed from Paul's letters. And the idea is is that one can be perfected in love for God and therefore perfected in one's love for others. Mm. And that entails personal transformation. Uh, it, uh, It entails personal or self-examination and an opening up to the work of the Holy Spirit. So that uh, in the Wesleyan tradition, what you're looking at, um, and this is true as a historical phenomenon in terms of Wesley's own thinking on this matter, is is really a, a kind of Protestant expression of what is described as theosis Mm -hmm. in the Orthodox tradition, meaning that the Christian life is about living ever more deeply into the life of God in Christ and letting that life fill you and shape you. Uh, The underlying idea being that we've been made in the image of God and that the experience of the Holy Spirit heals that image in us. So, so so there's a very different focus mm-hmm. in the Wesleyan tradition. So is there an, would it be correct to say that there is a social aspect to revival um in the Wesleyan viewpoint? Yes, I think it would be fair to say that. Um part of what uh grows out of that kind of language um is the conviction that following on that experience, you have been blessed to bless others. Mm -hmm. And so much of the Wesleyan movement uh, has given, has taken shape in terms of ministry to others, be it uh, mission work, uh, work alongside of others in other countries, or work among those who are marginalized to one degree or another. The Salvation Army is a part of that same tradition. Mm-hmm. And that's a that's a good window in a way to the way in which that doctrine of sanctification actually shapes the social engagement of the church. But of course, it, that would be true, though, of its influence on things like the social principles mm-hmm. that govern United Methodist life, for example. Mm. So obviously this has um, sparked a lot of debate and interest, of, you know, here in the United States, but also around the world. And kind of early on, there's been a lot of kind of scoffing about this um, one mm. of the the most common complaints that I hear is that this is revival is not interested in 
the helping of the poor. Um, that it's only, in fact, I think one person described it as a maybe a nonstop worship service or something to that extent. Um, are they looking at that maybe from a more just being cynical at religion in general, a misunderstanding of what revival is all about? Um, I mean, where is that coming from? Well, it, it, it's hard in absolute terms to know where all of that's coming from. I, I think that I think the one sort of fundamental misunderstanding of what's going on um, is a fundamental misunderstanding of the Christian tradition itself. Um, Christian spirituality is both about a journey inward and a journey outward. Uh, the con- the conviction being that a journey inward makes us available to the purposes of God, and the purposes of God revolve around the healing of both our relationship with God and our relationships with one another. Um, so that journey necessarily begins inwardly because that's the experience that orients us for the first time to the purposes of God. On the other hand, it would be an impoverishment of the Christian experience to argue that it's exclusively about that inward journey. Uh, If it doesn't doesn't issue an engagement with the needs of the world, then it lacks— the kind of uh, well-rounded nature of Christian spirituality. You think of think of the Epistle of James, for example, and the whole notion that both faith and works need to be of one th- kind of experience in order to be authentic. And so. Um, my suspicion is is that people on the progressive wing of the church have been so triggered by anything that looks like evangelical worship and evangelical practice that they're convinced that with that evangelicalism goes a particular set of convictions about engagement with the world that excludes social engagement, care for the poor and the marginalized, uh, reaching out to those who are on the fringes of society. Uh, but I, I think that that's, I think that that's probably mistaken in a couple of ways. Um, one is is that I think that, and I'm no, I'm not an evangelical. I've, I've had evangelical teachers, and I'm grateful for those experiences, but I guess I would more accurately describe myself as an Anglo-Catholic. Um, I, think that, uh, I think that one of the things it misunderstands is, is that evangelicalism is a much more complex movement than the body of beliefs and efforts that we associate with the likes of maybe a Jerry Falwell, who of course has been dead for a number of years, or Franklin Graham. Um, the The fact of the matter is, is that evangelicalism has been uh, and, and still is a movement that's much more sophisticated than that. Not nearly as public, but much more sophisticated. So, for example, when I was in seminary, I can remember conversations in the 1970s about the emergence of the neo-evangelical movement, which was primarily about evangelicals grappling with social engagement and with issues of social engagement. And it gave, gave rise to uh, magazines like the Wittenberg Door. Uh, and 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 other journals of that kind. It gave rise in some very important ways uh, to people like Ron Sider, uh, 
And uh, early on, it really shaped much of what Jim Wallace and Sojourners was all about. Um, and I think that those those people still exist to one degree or another and participate in the evangelical orbit of things and and can't be stereotyped in the fashion that they often are in reaction to an experience of this kind. But then the other issue is, is that the, Evan, the Wesleyan expression of even evangelicalism has always been very different uh, from the evangelicalism of the Reformed movement. And so that's a, that's a difference as well. Uh, because in the uh, in the even, in the evangelical and Wesleyan wing of the church, there has long been this emphasis not only on personal but social transformation. So those two things are held together in the concept of revival in a way that's potentially missing, not always, but potentially missing in other experiences or expressions of revivalism. Now, what's also interesting about what's going on at Asbury is that it's, this has happened before in this same place, Mm -hmm. about 50 Mm -hmm. years ago, um, in 1970, and yes. one could even go back farther um, into the 1800s. Um, what is it, do you think, about this neck of the woods that makes it so susceptible to revival? <laughs> well, that's a good question. Um, and uh, I, I have a friend, uh, Jason Vickers, who uh, actually teaches at Asbury Theological Seminary, which is the institution across the street from the university, um, who has has described the revival that's taking place there almost as on the order of the ancient uh, practice of pilgrimage. And uh, I think I'm not quoting Jason now, so I've got to be careful. I may I may be expanding or misrepresenting what he had to say, but uh, but to that point, um, the secret about pilgrimage, I think, is that pilgrimage to a holy place or pilgrimage to a place where other people have had experiences of God that um, are exceptional in nature uh, is is not so much about going to a particular place to find a God who is not present elsewhere, but rather it's about taking ourselves to a place where we have the opportunity to be fully present to God. And I think that, um, I think that to the extent that that's been true at Asbury, I think there are probably a number of reasons for it. Um, one is is that chapel has been mandatory there from the very beginning and mm. still is, which is not exclusive to Asbury, but it's among a handful of institutions that require chapel participation, especially in undergraduate institutions. Mm-hmm. So I think that that's one factor. Um I think a, a second factor is that the theology of the institution actually shapes a place where people are told or led to believe that this kind of encounter is possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, the you know the theology is is couched in language that has to do with the availability of God and the desire of God to lead people more deeply into their faith. And I think that 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 kind of language um, really shapes an institution over 
decades and centuries. It's it's interesting. The one of the very few adornments in the chapel are just the words "Holiness to the Lord" in the front of the chapel. And then the other thing I think that's that's going on, and maybe as a factor too, Dennis, and this <laughs> this made me wonder about my own tradition's struggle to figure out how to connect with young people and to keep them connected with their faith is the fact that you're dealing with an undergraduate institution. Mm-hmm. So you're so you're dealing with young people ages roughly 18 to 21 who are actually looking for direction in their lives. Mm-hmm. And they're looking for ways of thinking about their lives in a holistic fashion. And so I, I, you know, I, I think one of the things that's going on here is that they're taking seriously the capacity of young adults to make significant lifelong commitments that they can live into. Mm -hmm. And I, and I think that's probably also a part of what shapes the experience. Yeah, I think that one of the things that I find fascinating about this experience is that it is really being led by these college-age kids. Um, it is. This is not any adult that did this. Um, no. It's, I mean, I you know, and you've probably heard this story, too, about the person that gave the um, the pastor that preached there that day um, when this all started thought he did not do a good job. Um, and um, this is a lesson to you that God still uses your sermons, <laughs> no matter what, <laughs> even if you think they're terrible. Um, That's exactly right. <laughs> and just how much this is being kind of led by these kids, especially I think at a time when we seem to be told that this age group is not interested in religion. Um, mm-hmm. And yet we are seeing these people that are incredibly religious. Um, and oh. um, there was even a story of a, of a young woman that had lost her faith and I think came to this and it seems to have been regained. So it, this is kind of, it's just fascinating for that reason. And, and I think the other thing that I find fascinating is that it's, almost leaderless, which is so fast. So that fascinates me too. I I think you're exactly right. Uh, I mean, I was curious about it. So I listened to some of the live stream. I didn't listen to all of the live Mm -hmm. stream of the service uh, that, that uh, you can't even say got this started but the service that happened before this started. Mm-hmm. And and I and I would agree with the speaker. Uh, his presentation was uh pretty awkward and uh unprepossessing. Uh it, you know it, it wasn't dynamic oratory. Um there there wasn't um any kind of overtly manipulative effort uh, to create some sort of emotional reaction. Mm-hmm. And in fact, I gather from the reports that I've read that this really started with one student staying behind to continue to pray about his own relationship with God hmm. and that things grew from there. And um, it's it's pretty difficult to argue that, this whole thing has any kind of leadership, but the presence of the Holy Spirit. I mean, mm-hmm. it's you know, if you if if you wanted if you wanted kind of um, a case study of what this kind of experience maybe ought to look like, you'd be hard pressed to come up with one that's better than this. It's it is organic. It is from the bottom up. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also spread from the bottom up. I, I gather now that there's even a, a movement of revival at Belmont University here in Nashville. Hmm. 
which just adds to a longer and longer list of colleges and universities where young adults have been responding. Hmm. What do you think that this says about evangelicalism? Um, you know, I think especially in since mm-hmm. Trump years, we've had a certain view of of American evangelicalism. Um, right. Yeah. yeah. I tend to think that sometimes it's a very limited view because it's uh, as you've talked about a, a wider view than we tend to mm-hmm. to think. But you know, what does how does this what does this say about American evangelicalism? Well, to the to the extent that it says anything about American evangelicalism, and um, I I want to be cautious here because it, it, when we when we talk about what it says about American evangelicalism, we may be may well be talking about thousands of students who have no conscious connection with evangelicalism as a theological tradition. Um, They may have been broadly shaped by it. Um, The language may reflect certain tenets of evangelicalism pre-Trump, the authority of scripture, the importance of an encounter with the, with the resurrected Christ, um, the significance of an individual's response to that encounter. Those are all elements that were a part of evangelicalism long before anyone knew anything about Donald Trump, mm-hmm. either than as a, as a real estate mogul. Um, I, so the, so the answer, I guess, is, is complicated. On the one hand, I think that um, you've got uh, a movement that is um, not necessarily deeply connected to evangelicalism as a theological tradition. Um, and yet, to the extent that it does participate in that tradition, I think it suggests that the public and political critique of evangelicalism uh, is pretty wide of the mark in capturing what much of it is about. Mm-hmm. You know, I, th- I think back um, to the evangelicals that I knew when I was a seminarian um, and uh, the, the people I think of uh, were people who were schooled in, uh, higher critical method, uh, who wrote significant commentaries uh, on uh, biblical literature, who took the authority of scripture seriously, but were by no means literalists or inerrantists. Uh, and and I think of both Americans as well as uh, uh, Brits, who participated in, the, in those movements. And, and British evangelicalism was yet another thing entirely. Mm-hmm. Um, it was James D.G. Dunn, who was a New Testament scholar at the University of Nottingham. It was I. Howard Marshall, um, who um, taught, I believe, at St. Andrews uh, in Scotland. It was um, John Stott. Mm-hmm who was an Anglican and who was an English Anglican. Um, And uh, Michael Green, who was a British evangelist and uh, was pastor of St. Aldate's in Oxford in England. And um, those, those are not people who would have been at all sympathetic with the evangelicalism that is associated with Donald Trump. Uh, And in fact, um, I think they would have actively rejected them. And my suspicion is they still do. Um, You know, there's, there are people like Randall Balmer, who's 
you know, uh, an evangelical church historian, um, far too theologically sophisticated to belong to the rather sort of vapid nationalist political reinterpretation of evangelicalism. So in a way, I guess, though, though I don't, you know, I don't have any personal attachment to the movement. Um, I think if I were an evangelical, um, I, I would feel that what this experience the students are having um, points to the vibrance of the tradition and its potential for the future. And I and I think I would also probably be um, complaining pretty loudly that it had been co-opted by people who don't know enough about its theological tradition. Mm-hmm. And certainly there's nothing that Donald Trump says that suggests he reflects very deeply on the comments he makes about his faith. No, he does not. <laughs> <laughs> So. <laughs> I didn't think you'd argue with me about that. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm kind of curious, what does this, this whole event and, and because I think a lot of this is kind of the movement, at least from what I've heard from others. And I think from what I've observed is a movement of the spirit. Mm-hmm. And, it feels at times, especially in mainline circles, we have a hard time with that third person of the Trinity. Um, frankly, we don't know what to do with the third <laughs> person of the Trinity. Um, and yeah. sometimes I think we try to pretend a third person of the Trinity doesn't exist. Um, but, <laughs> you know, what is this whole thing talking about, about, what does this whole thing have to say about kind of the role of the Holy Spirit in our life and in in the life of the church as a whole right. and then also within society? Right. Well, I mean, I th- first of all, I think you're right. I think we I think we really struggle for a place um, for the Holy Spirit. Um, I think that um, a lot of mainline Protestantism. Um, is really um, de facto binitarian, mm-hmm. not trinitarian, and and maybe not even robustly trinitarian. Uh, my wife and I were in a Methodist church in New Hampshire, uh, where the pastor uh, baptized a little girl in the name of God, Jesus, who witnessed to God's kingdom. And that was it. There was no doctrine of the Trinity, uh, no doctrine of the Holy Spirit, not even what one could really call a robust Christology in the way that it was framed. It was kind of more Unitarian. It was. It was. And it was... And no offense to, I know Unitarians, but it just feels very Unitarian. well, Well, I mean, Unitarians come by it honestly. Uh, you know, my 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 question at the time was more why a United Methodist sounded so much like a Unitarian. Uh, not that I don't know Episcopalians who sound like that too. Uh, so, l- lest I sound like I'm I'm being uh, critical of Methodists, um, I think that I think though that this gives us a really kind of practical opportunity to think about. Um, what the work of the Holy Spirit is about. Um, and I, you know, to go back to our conversation about the seemingly cynical critiques of the revival that's been taking place at Asbury and elsewhere, I guess the thing I would want us all to ask ourselves is if if we truly believe that God is in the business of revolutionizing our own behavior um, and our behavior toward one another in both individual as well as in corporate terms, then isn't it 
isn't that indeed the work of the Holy Spirit? And isn't in, is it not in fact true that if we're going, if the Holy Spirit is going to do that work, then we need to be uh, at least provisionally open to having our own approach to life and our own theology called into question to one degree or another. I mean, one of the things that I, the older I get, the thing that I am more and more aware of is that um, if I really want to hear God, if I really want to receive the guidance that the Holy Spirit has to offer me, then I need to be prepared to set aside the justifications that I might offer for why I am where I am in any one moment, Uh, be it in terms of uh, the shape of my own spiritual life or in terms of in the shape of my conduct toward others, then I need to be really uh, vulnerable to being drawn into question and being led in new directions. Um, and I, I, I think it's, you know, one of the, one of the sad things about it is, is that I, I think mainline Protestants, uh, are very good about talking about the new directions that, uh, they feel our faith ought to be taking us, but then, the directions that they want to go are mainly a part of a fixed program that they had in mind in the first place. And my question is, is, is I, no matter how good your program is, um, if it isn't shaped by vulnerability to the leadership of the Holy Spirit, then isn't it really about a direction you thought we ought to be going all along, whether God is in it or not? Um, and I think that's one of the one of the really serious questions this whole revival movement uh, raises for us. I, you know, I think too, Dennis. I think honestly, I think that part of the reason that we're finding it so difficult um, to take this seriously and and to leave it alone or at least um, set aside uncharitable criticisms of it is I think we may be just a little jealous hmm. that this movement took place from the ground up among young people and is capturing the minds and hearts of thousands of them without us being at the forefront, telling them where that experience is to be found. I know, I know it's, I know it's been hard on evangelical preachers. I've read some reports about, about evangelical preachers and musicians offering themselves up to provide uh, free guidance and worship leadership. Uh, and the university has actually turned them down flat and said, this is, this is the Spirit's work. We're trying to stay out of the way. You need to stay out of the way. Hmm. So, And then that can be kind of, I don't know if scary is the right word, but if also a sense of, if you think that you're the one that's, got to do it and this is just kind of happening mm-hmm. the spirit's just kind of happening that can also be a bruise to the ego there uh oh it sure sure it can sure it can uh, but you know i um i frequently tell people the two keys to spiritual growth is is one there is a god to you or not <laughs> and uh, and I and I think that that needs to shape our behavior, um, and um, it, it give thanks for the fact that this is happening, uh, rather than um, 
throwing cold water on it, questioning the motives of people, um, suggesting somehow somehow it's bankrupt because it isn't happening the way that we think it ought to happen. Mm-hmm. Hmm. That's it's really a kind of Gamaliel moment. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've been thinking about that a lot. In, in you know that Gamaliel was was he was on it. He said, you know what? If this is uh, isn't of God, then it'll die out. If it's not, it won't. So you know, yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, and yeah, I I, I find it interesting how we don't kind of offer that room to see what might happen. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there's no, I'm, I think there's no little spiritual hubris involved to wade into the middle of something like this and saying, no, 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 I, I know it's not of God. Um, and I can, and I can tell you now why it's not of God. Um, so that's a risky place to live, I think. Well, I mean, it is funny, kind of like, here's this thing happening. Oh, let me get in front of this. Like, uh, mm. <laughs> you know, getting in front of something like that could mean you get run over. <laughs> just, just, <laughs> just saying. Either that or just look like the ultimate hypocrite. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I realize there, that's a maxim in politics. If you can't, if you can't lead them, then follow them and get ahead of them. Um, uh, but I don't think that works in, I don't think that works in the spiritual world quite the way it works in politics. One of the things that I found interesting is a, um, it was a post by, um, Nadia Boltz Weber, um, the, the Lutheran minister. Um, right. And what was fascinating is that she talked a little bit about, the the sense of kind of longing that this event mm-hmm. brings up, at least in her life. Um, and one of the things that I've been wondering is, and, and I think about this is, is this whole event also kind of reaching out to spiritual longings that in some ways in our culture, we've either, or do we try to program, you know, in some ways or, or ignore in some different way? Mm-hmm. No, I, th- I think it is. I think it is a problem. And I think it's a spiritual hunger um, that we all have. Um, I, we actually, I actually had a parishioner uh, come up to me on Sunday between the services and say, um, you know, um, I've been following this thing at Asbury, and I realized um, that what you and Mother Natalie have been talking to us about is is exactly this kind of thing mm. this this longing for completion and fulfillment, and the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Um, and it was, it was interesting to me that, um, watching this process at Asbury unfold online had helped crystallize some of that preaching and teaching for him. Um, and I think there's good, there's, there are good reasons for that. Um, I mean, we're Episcopalians, so... We don't have altar calls, um, and uh, we don't sing 15 verses of Just As I Am, um, inviting people forward. Um, but, uh, but we do talk about the work of the Holy Spirit in people's lives, and I think that a lot of people are really longing for that kind of connection. Um, I think we may be... I I I'm not sure. Um I'd hesitate to be adamant about this the the trajectory of uh spiritual expression in the United States seems to be all moving in one direction. 
but I wonder whether we're not uh, potentially, at least in some corners, coming to the end of the attraction of the spiritual but not religious movement. Hmm. Um, Hard to say, certainly impossible to say on the basis of one phenomenon like this. But the fact of the matter is, is that um, the whole spiritual but not religious movement, it seems to me from the very beginning, um, is burdened in a lot of ways. Um, it's it's burdened by lacking scripture and a tradition to depend upon. It's burdened by lacking a history of communal expression and the connection that goes along with it. Uh, it's burdened by the labor of basically trying to invent your own God. And on the other side of things, it's burdened by inventing your own God and then being largely isolated with that God, having no context in which to share it with the next generation, never mind with any of your contemporaries. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, you know, it seems to me that that has been evident ever since Robert Bella wrote Habits of the Heart, mm-hmm. um, and and talked about how the spiritual they weren't using that language then, but the spiritual but not religious movement was beginning to emerge. And he interviewed a young woman whose name was Sheila, mm-hmm. and said she had her own her own religion called Sheilaism, which was cobbled together from her experiences as a Baptist and as a Roman Catholic and as a disenchanted agnostic and um, a spiritualist. Um, and I've thought all along that that's just a, that's just a very burdensome and isolated, isolated and isolating way. Uh, to pursue a spiritual life. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know whether maybe some of this echoes that emptiness and whether a new generation is, is saying to an older generation, uh, we, we can't, or we're not going to put our spiritual lives together this way. Well, I don't think that it turned out so great. Um, (laughs) I remember years ago, maybe um, now this was like 10, 15 years ago, when kind of spiritual but not religious with all the rage, especially kind of <clears throat> around the time of the emerging church um, stuff. And um, mm-hmm. I was never that interested in it because it just seemed to be kind of like you said, made up. and. Mm-hmm that religion and spirituality in in some ways is always inherited. It, it's something that's, it, it's a tradition. It's, it's a thing. And this always felt like it's a lot of work and that mm-hmm. in the end, it's not always going to help, you know, kind of when things get rough um, because it's kind of cobbled together and it 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 maybe it I don't know I heard a lot about the spiritual but not religious coming around the time of you know the rise of like you know Facebook and Twitter and all that and I don't I don't want to get into the whole blame everything on social media, um, oh. but I do think that that allowed us to kind of create our own self or something in some ways, and I think mm-hmm. we're kind of coming to that sense of this ain't working. Um, and I think it's also interesting how much the church in, in mainline churches try to buy into that too. And, you know, that, I don't think that that helped us in any way as well, but, you know, to try to, to buy into it. 
No, I don't. I don't think it did. Uh, I know in terms of my own tradition, um, uh, the thing I've always felt is is that if if at least in the Anglican Episcopal tradition, um, we have anything to offer, uh, it's it's the fact that we have a liturgy mm-hmm. that is grounded in the first centuries of the church's life. And we have a theological tradition uh, that looks in uh, constructive and thoughtful ways to the theological development of the church from the early centuries on and and attempts to draw on those elements. Um, When we began in isolated pockets to throw that away in the name of really pandering uh, to uh, people who were spiritual but not religious, uh, we we put ourselves in a position of really um, offering something that isn't true to the tradition. It's, it's, not, it's not what we natively have to offer. Mm-hmm. So it's a little bit. It's a little bit like a school that offers a major that's taught entirely by adjuncts. Um, you're, you know, you're you're not offering people a strength on the basis of your existing faculty. You're just a convening space for the work of other individuals. And you know, the thing we, the thing we found was that. Sure, there were young people who were attracted to the SBNR movement, but there were also a lot of young people who were attracted to the liturgy. They were even they were even attracted of all things to Evensong, hmm. uh, which is sort of one of the more thoroughly ancient and Anglican traditions, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and uh, I think. We just embarrass ourselves when we when we try to be something we're not. Uh, I mean, that's to my mind, that's just the definition of inauthenticity. Um, and I've and I've long thought um, we we may or may not um, survive as a tradition, but uh, but if we fail to survive as a tradition, we at least ought to fail on our own terms. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's true. I think that's true for mainline Protestantism as well. This is the SBNR movement is, uh, you know, it, it, this is always going to be a phenomenon in American religious practice. It, I mean, it goes, it, it goes yeah. back to Henry David Thoreau. It, it, it yeah. goes back to spiritualists, down through the down through the centuries it it uh goes to spiritualism that's echoed in novels by Sinclair Lewis that date from the 1920s um uh, it, it there's there's always going to be a certain amount of this in american life because we americans can't help but invent a new widget and it does depend on what doesn't matter whether it's a mechanical widget or a spiritual widget. Uh, we're going as a culture, we're going to indulge in a certain amount of this. But the church has to witness to something of mm-hmm. greater permanence than that. Mm-hmm. So I know we're getting kind of close to the end here, but mm-hmm. what do you see as the kind of fruit that will come out of this experience. Um, I know that there, um, Asbury University is kind of deciding at this point to kind of wind things down. And I think one of the things I've heard from them is that they kind of want this to, that it's kind of now it needs to kind of go to spread from, from beyond Asbury. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I'm kind of curious, what do you think is going to be the kind of, result that could happen you know maybe not immediate but maybe a few years down the road and and how will this affect the church how will this affect our our wider society 
Well, it's an interesting question. Um, and I don't think there's any way to predict exactly what shape it will take. I mean, in part because it is a ground-up organic movement. Um, it is likely to spread and to um, take many different shapes. And that may eventually um, shape the trajectory of individual lives. There may be students who band together in one way or another to do things of a rather more communal and corporate nature. Mm -hmm. uh, if it's anything like the past, um, it's, it's likely um, to create some people who will look for opportunities to serve in existing uh, structures in the Christian church, whether it means that they'll go on to go to seminary and seek ordination, or perhaps, um, and this has been a really common leitmotif of, of life at Asbury, uh, they'll be devoted to uh, work in other countries alongside of, alongside of people from other nations uh, in an effort to uh, care for the poor uh, and to uh, reach people with a view to uh, addressing issues of literacy and well-being of various kinds, uh, and it may give it may give shape to new ministries of of a completely different kind. Um, so I don't I don't have any kind of uh, concrete notion of just exactly what will happen, but I think it'll be a I think it'll be a significant force, uh, and because I'm convinced that young adults can make these kinds of choices early on in their lives in a way that transforms them for a lifetime. I think that there are likely to be thousands of adults who look back on this experience 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years later and recognize that this was something of a watershed for them. It's kind of another way of saying it will be interesting to see where the spirit moves. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you again for coming on. And I do need to have you back on. There are some other topics we wanted to talk okay. about. So Sounds this great. is an open, this is an invitation that you will be back. Thanks, Dennis. I'll look forward to it. It's oh. always good talking with you. All right. Blessings, friend. I'm thankful that um, Frederick was able to come by and talk a little bit about what's been going on um, with the Asbury Revival. I'm, I hope really to have him back um, sometime soon in the near, very near future um, to talk about um, a little bit about Canada's, um, I'm going to get this wrong, but it's, it's called the MAID Law. Uh, basically, it's kind of dealing with assisted su a suicide. And what is the church's role in this law? It's it's very controversial. Um, in some ways, it goes farther than a lot of other places in the world. Um, you know, we think about the Netherlands, um, maybe Belgium, places like California, uh, some places in Australia that have um, forms of kind of assisted suicide of some type. Um, Canada's goes a lot farther. Um, and in many ways, I think it's disturbing for people in the church. Um, so hopefully I will have him back within the next month or so, and we will talk a little bit more about that um, law and what does that mean for the church in general. Also, um, 
there I will put um an article he recently wrote about um the Asbury revival from a Wesleyan perspective. And then I'm also going to include a link uh, to an article. Many of you probably have already read it um, from Nadia Boltz Weber, um, Lutheran pastor, and she has her own take um, as she only she can do um, on the Asbury revival. I think it was a very good article. And so I wanted to include that as well. Um, Also, uh, consider subscribing to the podcast. You can do that on your favorite podcast app. Um, also consider subscribing to uh, the newsletter on Substack. Um, it's not just the podcast. I do do some writing there as well, on, on uh, usually on spiritual issues. And so I do hope that you will consider. You can uh, find everything there at uh, Church in Maine, all one word, dot Substack. Dot com. So that is it for this episode of Church in Maine. This is the podcast at the intersection of faith and modern life. I'm Dennis Sanders, your host. Take care, Godspeed, and I will see you very soon. <music>